section, and, and we're in this passage in Genesis of Isaac and then Jacob lying and deceiving, and I thought to myself, wow, how, how right on the, the money this is. And the article was really interesting because it went on to talk about how um, um, it's, it's kind of like part of our natural development as human beings to, to develop in the area of lying. And uh, in fact, it suggested that people, children who have autistic tendencies, maybe they're on the spectrum, have a hard time with lying because uh, they're not equipped in the same way as normal uh, functions. And as I was sitting there reading this article, I thought to myself, wow, how, 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 how missing of the point here this article also is. Uh, I mean, there's truth to the fact that maybe children maybe haven't got the capacity to plan and articulate and strategize and stuff like that to tell, pull off a lie, but there's a missing component here in all of this, in this article. I don't know if you can see it, like, the, 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 it's, there's an absence of God in this, this piece, this article that I was reading, and particularly God's condemnation of lying. God said in the Scriptures, what? Thou shalt not lie. And it's God's Word, the Bible, which shines light on the human condition and the darkness that's in our human condition. Lying is fundamentally the evidence that we have left God who is true. So, the sins that we commit, yes, while lying is true to human nature, it also shows us that we have a sin nature that is inherent to who we are. And so, very fascinating that this would come up in my week, and it would also fit this text of Scripture with Jacob lying. What is the root of this issue of lying? I've kind of danced around it a little bit here this morning. But the, the root of our sin tendency, which brings devastating consequences upon us, is that we have left God. God has allowed us to inherit the whirlwind of our sinful desire to be away from Him. Romans 1.18, and if you have your handout here this morning, it's the first verse that's set there on the, the handout. Romans 1.18 says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Excuse me, I didn't read that right, did I? It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul uses two words here to describe the object of God's wrath. There is within us a sin principle, a fundamental attitude of against God. We don't want anything to do with Him. We're against Him. We're ungodly. We don't want to be connected to Him, which out of that attitude comes actions, unrighteousness, deeds. So, there's attitude that affects actions. And actually, Ungodliness is something that we are all, all guilty of to some degree. 
That may come as a surprise to you. We don't like to think ourselves as being ungodly, even if we are Christians. I mean, that's the attitude of the atheists, the wicked people, right? I mean, we attend church, we, we avoid all those scandalous things that we read in the newspapers. But the ungodliness, really, isn't that those who live truly wicked lives? Well, there is a sense in which believers can at times exhibit an attitude of ungodliness to which God is against. And I believe it's helpful for us to understand that ungodliness is defined as living one's life apart from God, living it with little thought for God, not considering His will, and certainly caring little for His glory. So, when we act as if God is irrelevant, there is the truth that then we are acting, we are having the attitude of ungodliness. I mean, anybody can be good and yet be ungodly. We read, we, you know, you know people that you, you work with people who, who maybe are good people, but they don't really think about God at all. That is the characteristic of the attitude that characterizes ungodliness. But there's effect that comes out of that. So, the idea that I want us to see here in the life of Isaac and Jacob and his family here is that there is that when God is far from our thoughts, when God is outside of our thinking, then sin is very near. What are the evidences of ungodliness in the life of this family? There are several examples of this in the life of Isaac's family. And the first is, there is a forgetfulness and that forgetfulness is indication that they're not thinking about God, and it leads them into actions. So, there's a little bit of going back here just to kind of collect our thoughts here this morning. In Genesis 26, if you'd look back at Genesis 26, verses 1 through 11, Isaac was getting ready to go down to Egypt. He, he was stopped by God. And God said to him in chapter 26, verses 2 through 3, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land which I tell you, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. And so, we had learned here that Isaac had been adopted, if you will, into the family of God. God was going to bless him as if he was his own son. He's told to live by faith knowing that God is going to bless him regardless of the circumstances. And so Isaac stops and he lives in Gerar. He's knowing that God is blessing him, but something happens. God starts to leave his thinking. God is not even mentioned in the account here. He's forgetful, and this forgetfulness triggers some un unrighteous actions. He begins to to lie, and it triggers deceit about his spouse, calling him, calling her his sister. There's a self-preservation that takes place in the forgetfulness. 
There's a forgetfulness, and there's that God is distant. He's not even really remotely in his thoughts, even though God had, had entered into his relationship with him and said, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make sure that you're prosperous no matter what's going to happen. You follow me. And so Isaac here is not following. He's forgetting. And secondly, I want us to see in the life here, and again, I'm moving very quickly through this because we've been through some of this in past weeks, but maybe not the pointed applications here. And in chapter 27, Isaac downplays God's will. Verses 1 through 4. Isaac, when he's old, he's, he's now wanting to bless, bless his son Esau, not Jacob. But what had God said? God had said, do this. And yet he was wanting to do this over here. See, God has revealed to us in His Word what He wants us to do. We might not think of our day-to-day decisions of life so much as significant, per se, but I think that we, you know, we can ignore God's specific will for us that is very clear in the Scriptures, which is that He wants us to be conformed to the image of His Son. The New Testament is very clear in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, where, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is that good and acceptable and perfect. This is what God's will is for you. He wants you to grow in holiness. It's very clear. And it looks like learning the character of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has been given us by God to to show us the love of Christ and to share the love of Christ, to love God and to love our neighbor. And this is very clear. These are very clear things. But Satan's schemes, as Larissa said, are like, they're ever new, but they're ever old. He is a master at trying to get us to justify our sin choices and ignore God's direct will for us. He does this by, you know, downplaying what God has clearly said. I mean, Isaac had heard clearly through his wife's prayer request that the older shall serve the younger. And now what do we find him doing? He's saying, did God really say that? By his actions, he's demonstrating that he's downplaying what God's intentions are. And this is how it works in our own lives. We might hear it in our own consciousness, things like, did God actually say, husbands love your wives and cherish them? Did God actually say that? Yes, He did. Did God actually say, show hospitality to one another without grumbling? Yes, He did, through the Apostle Peter. Did God actually say, put away obscene talk from your mouth? Colossians 3.8. Did God actually say, children, obey your parents in the Lord? Yes, he actually said that. 
He desires us to do these things. And if we're not careful, the habitual downplaying of God's will is a manifestation that we act, we're acting as if God doesn't exist. And so these unrighteous acts flow out of that inner heart attitude. Number three, moving quickly through this, in the life of Isaac, we can also ignore God's glory. Genesis 27 and verse 4, notice that Isaac asks Esau to prepare for him a delicious food, such as I love and bring it to me so that I might eat it and that my soul may bless you before I die. He's loving something other than God. He's wanting to make much of it. And that's what glorification is. We, we make much of something. For example, if I were to make much about my cat, Rusty, I would be glorifying him. I mean, I, I actually am allergic to cats, but you know what? I love Rusty. Rusty is, is one of the best mouser cats I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. He's a rodent killing machine. In fact, he's brought home snakes, he's brought home moles, mice, birds, even a small rabbit. Actually, it was a big rabbit. In fact, I think Rusty has his eyes on the chickens across the street. And I love Rusty. Rusty does some good things for me. He reduces the moles. He's like our pest control guy. But as soon as Rusty is, you know, not doing his thing, he might get dropped off at a farm. But that's a stupid illustration. But our tendency to make much of things reveals what makes us most happy. And if we make much of anything else in a greater way than God, we're ignoring His glory, and we're elevating something else in the place that's reserved for God. God can satisfy my soul like nothing else. And that's what ungodliness is at root. It's ignoring of that which, that which is God and replacing it with something else. What was the deepest foundation of Isaac's happiness here? It was himself. His desire to satisfy his stomach was greater than giving God the glory and doing what God commands. He wasn't making much of God's instructions. He was making much of meat and little of God. And the question is, what is the basis of our happiness? Is the deepest basis of our joy God's greatness or our greatness? Are we satisfied with praising Him or are we satisfied by the praise of others? Are we God-centered because of His surpassing value or are we God-centered because He highlights my surpassing value? 
Would it be heaven to me to see God or to be God? God's glory is the only glory worth living for. And see, there are, these are all aspects, these are all evidences of ungodliness, of, of, of taking God out of our thoughts and then living life as if God doesn't exist. These are evidences, but the evidences become consequences. And that's where we get into the new section of this text in chapter 27, verse 18 to 25. Again, we did read this last week, but we're getting closer to this newer section. And, we, and, and, and in chapter 27, 18 to 25, we see deceit and manipulation going on. There is a lying and forgetting of God. There's a minimizing of His will. And when God is so far away, then sin is near. Again, just an example again from that article that I read in the National Geographic, very short, they, says, they said, we, we all lie, but not all lies are the same. People lie and tell the truth to achieve a goal. We lie if honesty won't work. What are some of those goals? <laughs> National Geographic highlights some of those goals. One, protecting of self. Two, promoting of self. Three, impacting others negatively. So we may hurt other people directly and deliberately through slander or gossip. We may promote ourselves by inflating our own resume so that people will think well of us. Or we cover up and we downplay our shortcomings like the Pharisees. We lie. In other words, we, we lie and we manipulate because we think that God is not going to do what He ought to do for us. And so when we sin, we, sin into, to, we slip into a lapse of ungodliness. And we can destroy friendships, we can destroy relationships just here exactly to the point. The deceit and the try to manipulate all had nasty consequences of destruction within that family. A second evidence or a, a consequence is of hatred, malice, and unrighteous anger develops. Let's read 27, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it, but we haven't read it yet. Chapter 28, rather. No, I'm sorry, chapter 27. Chapter 27, verse 41. Let's read it through verse 48. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from, he, from there. Why should I be reft of you both in one day? And then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. 
If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so, you can see in Esau the hatred and the, the malice, the, that anger that develops that's unrighteous. What is God? God is love. And the absence of God is hate. And when you distance yourself from God, the abiding love of God will be absent. It won't be full. It will be corrupted. It will be deceitful. It won't be real. And the harboring of hate will become malice. And this is what's happening in his heart. There's an anger that's wanting resolution. It can't happen without his death. There's fury. Mom describes it in verse 44 as his brother's fury. You know, I think if we are not careful, when we think about anger, we can become, if we're not careful, Zen Buddhists regarding anger. We're made in the image of God. God Himself has anger. Anger in itself is not the problem. It's what what we're going to do with that anger that becomes the problem. Anger in itself is simply a statement that I'm against this injustice. I'm against what wrong has been committed. And how we how we out of how that flows comes potential sin. Do we turn to God or we try to solve problems by ourselves? There are times when Christians can become angry, and if we're not careful, it can show that we're in a temporary alignment with ourselves and not God. We can be temporarily aligned with our own kingdom and not God's kingdom. And that's a dangerous place to be. Even believers who have the light of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we can forget that, that God is really near and is the answer to the problems that we're displeased with. If we're not careful, we can minimize His will, and we can be living for our own glories, our own pleasures, and if somebody is getting in my way, I'm going to destroy them. That's the kingdom of Satan, not the kingdom of Christ. There are real wrongs that take place in this world, and the energy that's necessary to correct those wrongs is granted to us through the image of God. Anger is a power to correct unrighteousness and injustice. But it can also develop into grotesque pleasures. Now, look what it, look what it says there in, in verse 42. In verse 42, it says that Esau is, you know, comforting himself because he's planning to kill Jacob. That is bizarre. That is a bizarre outcome. Taking comfort in the demise of another person is a real strong expression of darkness. I mean, we would never do anything like that, would we? Have any of us ever had an imaginary conversation with somebody in our head telling them off? Oh, if 
I could just. And we're finding comfort in that. That's bizarre. That's grotesque. It's like, a, it's like somebody who, who drives, they're really angry at a, a coworker, and you know what they do? They drive right past their house, and they gesture obscenely in front of that house. No one can see it. I mean, you read about some of the stuff in the paper, but that's what it is. It's, it's like finding comfort in the expression, and the danger is that expressions become actions. That is a significant consequence of ungodliness, that God is far away and that I have to retaliate. I have to be a voodoo doctor and go and, and, and do this his place. He's finding comfort in this. It's bizarre. I use that word bizarre again here with his thoughts because he's really confused. He gets really foolish, Esau does, in his ungodliness. Let's go into chapter 28 and read a little bit here. It says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples, May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, and the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now this is where Esau gets foolish in his thinking, because he's not thinking about God. He says in, in, says in verse 6, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael. It's his, it's his like, great uncle. And took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Okay, this is really bizarre thinking, and we can slip into this if we're not careful. Esau discovers that the wife, the women that he has chosen to be his wife, put aside the, the, the polygamy for a moment. These women displease my parents. Now, he thinks to himself, if I just now rectify and marry a woman who then pleases my parents, then maybe I can get a blessing out of them. But the gaining of blessing from God doesn't work that way. The truth is, God blesses whom He will, and He curses those who will. You do not and you cannot merit God's free grace. And this is where I think we can slip into some stinking thinking as even believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We cannot and we do not, we cannot increase God's favor for us. 
God's favor upon us is full, and it's not based upon our performance. It doesn't work that way. I mean, Esau, there's a profound uh, indication of his total lack of understanding of who God is. And I think it's very dangerous for us as, as believers that we might fall into the same reliance upon our performance, and it can be very deceptive, and it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. A reliance upon our performance to merit favor and acceptance with God is not just the error that leads us away from the wicked gate, the gate of decision. It is also the error that gets us sidewind on the way to the celestial city. And a reliance upon our performance is a lot like an architectural wonder. They're called deceptive pillars. There was an ancient, there was an architect in England. His name is Christopher Wren. He built this portico for a second floor in a building back in the 1600s. He designed it so that those four middle columns weren't necessary to support the weight of the second floor. And the city fathers came to him and said, no, I don't know, we need something else under here to prop this up. And so what he did was he, he said, okay, he put these four pillars in, but it wasn't until years later when they were doing some cleaning, they put scaffolding up that they observed that these pillars didn't go all the way to the ceiling. There was a gap, and actually you might just barely see some of the gap in the shadows of these pictures. They're deceptive pillars. They're like, it makes me feel good like maybe this won't collapse. And I see this as a great illustration of how our performance at times can be a security blanket. Just taking on another wife is not going to get you any more favor with God. God's grace is full and free, and it's directed towards you. And I think it's important for us to realize that when God is absent from our thinking, there's all kinds of consequences that can come from it. But you know what? There's a last consequence of ungodliness that's important for us to remember because it gives us hope. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We need to realize that the consequences of ungodliness necessitated the cross. And our ungodliness moved God to demonstrate His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, ungodliness is that, that absentee mentality, living your life as if God doesn't exist, and we can fall into that trap. Okay, Sunday might have been encouraging. I got my head in gear, and whoa, I'm, I'm with God again. And then Monday comes, and I haven't, I'm, I'm living life without God, and Tuesday and Thursday, and the whole week through.
Do we give thought to God moment by moment? Do we give thought to what His Word would have us to do? Are we living, making much of our own selves, of our own cat? Or do we consciously give our hearts as a living sacrifice to God? Again, the giving of our hearts to God in a living sacrifice doesn't get us more. It's a demonstration of our love for Him. And so, when, when God is far, sin is near. But let's make God close. And so that holiness may grow and change can take place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank You for this morning. We pray, Father, that 